So Money episode 883, Mark Lichtenfeld, author of Get Rich with Dividends. You're listening to So Money with award-winning money guru, Farnoosh Torabi. Each day, get a 30-minute dose of financial inspiration from the world's top business minds, authors, influencers, and from Farnoosh herself. Looking for ways to save on gas or double your double coupons? Sorry, you're in the wrong place. Seeking profound ways to live a richer, happier life? Welcome to So Money. They've never had a losing decade. So uh, so the stuff works. You know, for, for long-term investing, this, this style really does work very well. This style of investing is known as Getting Rich with Dividends. Our guest today is Mark Lichtenfeld. He's the author of a book, Get Rich with Dividends, a proven system for double-digit returns. It was awarded the 2016 Book of the Year by the Institute for Financial Literacy. And, you know, on this podcast, we often talk about long-term investing, investing in low-fee index funds, not, you know, doing this sort of dart-throwing, picking of stocks. That said, Mark has a lot of experience investing in the stock market and particularly with dividend stocks. So I thought, you know what, let's do a little bit of a sidebar here and talk about the benefits to this and also what to look out for. Mark is also a member of the Oxford Club, which is a group in Washington, D.C. It has over 157,000 members across the globe. And these are mostly investors and entrepreneurs who work together to learn and share opportunities to grow and protect their wealth. So he has his ear to the ground to know what the rich are doing with their money and how we can, you know, learn from that. I was curious to learn some of those strategies. Mark and I talk about the pros and cons of dividend investing, his own upbringing, uh, learning about stocks, where his curiosity stems from. And Mark and I go back. We actually cross paths of the street.com and uh, we share a moment about Jim Cramer. Here is Mark Lichtenfeld. Mark Lichtenfeld, welcome to So Money. Hi, Farnoosh. Thanks for having me. It's great to connect with you. I understand that our paths may or may not have crossed at thestreet.com a long time ago. You have had a huge career as an author. You're really interested in the investing world and the market. How did you arrive at this place? How did you become such a market enthusiast? Well, I didn't have kind of the traditional career trajectory for someone who went to Wall Street or, or was interested in investing. When I got out of college, I wanted to be an actor. And I was trying to make it as an actor in, first in New York and then in San Francisco. And I found I was spending all my free time studying the markets and just trying to learn everything that I could. And so eventually uh, I got married and decided I should probably make my hobby my career and my career my hobby. So I pounded the pavement and found an entry-level job as a trading assistant uh, on a trading desk. And from there, became a financial journalist uh, with the dot-com company during the dot-com boom called On24, and later at the street, as you mentioned, and became a sell-side analyst later on, and uh, now work for the Oxford Club for the past 11 years. And based on when you started that, compared to where we are today, as far as just the sentiments around how to be a smart investor, that's changed a lot, right? Because I think even when I started, which was back in the early 2000s, there was a, there were many articles and a lot of advice around stock picking, individual stock picks. 
Whereas now it's really about picking the low fee funds and our audience generally, you know, we're not the kind that's, you know, checking our stock numbers every day. And frankly, I don't think we should be. But so what is your advice today? How has it changed or um, how has it maybe evolved over the years? Well, when I started, it was kind of right before the dot-com boom. So things were very different then. Nobody seemed to be particularly focused on the long term. Everybody was a stock picker. Everybody was trying to get rich as these, these stocks took off you know, every single day, it seemed like. Whereas you're right, today, there is definitely the focus more on low-cost index funds, ETFs. My thinking, though, is it's, it's, it's a little bit split. On one hand, I do think you want to have your portfolio allocated across a variety of, of index funds or ETFs. But I do think there is place for stock picking and not – not in the way of trying to find that that next Facebook or that next stock that's going to go up 500%. I mean, if, if you want to speculate with you know some extra funds, that's fine. But what I focus on is picking companies that raise their dividends every single year and holding those for the long term. And so if you can do that, you can outperform the market and really generate a substantial amount of wealth as if you're reinvesting the dividends and letting them compound over the years. Or if you're if you need to collect the income, the nice thing about that strategy is the income that you collect from those dividends goes up every year and should beat inflation and keep well ahead of inflation. So you actually increase your buying power. And speaking of getting rich with dividends, that's your book, one of your many books, Get Rich with Dividends, A Proven System for Earning Double-Digit Returns. Let's talk about that specifically. How do you identify these stocks? There are a lot of companies that do offer dividends, but you're talking about double-digit returns, which is not every stock. How do you go about analyzing this and discovering these companies? So what I'm looking for is uh, there are a few different factors. One, I want a company that has a history of raising the dividend because the dividend growth is going to be an important factor in achieving those double digit returns. And, and keep in mind, this is over the long term. So, you know, in year one or year two, you may make 6%, you could lose 3%. But over a 10 year period, we're expecting double digit average annual returns. And, and that really uh, it doesn't, you know, 10, 12% doesn't sound like a lot in a year, but if it's compounding over a decade, it triples your money. So it, it really is quite meaningful. So I'm looking for companies that have a history of raising the dividend every single year. I'd like to see at least five years, but really preferably 10, 15, 20 years or more. And the reason for that is if a company has a long history of raising the dividends, the investors have come to expect that dividend increase. And if management suddenly stops raising the dividend, forget cutting it, they just stop raising it after, let's say, 30 years in a row, the CEO may have to update his LinkedIn profile because he, he's going to get a revolt on the part of investors. So uh, it, it's, it's, a, it's a very strong statement by management that they are confident in the company's future cash flows. I also look for companies with low payout ratios based on cash flow. So in other words, I want the company to be generating enough cash flow to be able to pay the dividend and, and have a little bit of a buffer so they're not paying you know, every single dollar out that they're generating cash flow and dividends. So in case we hit a recession, business gets tough, uh, they can still afford to pay that dividend. And then there's some other other factors as well. But those are, are two of the main things that I look for. And is this the framework that you've been going by? Or is this an aspect to your investment strategy? Or is it? Uh, that's, the, that's the main 
framework for the book, Average with Dividends, and also my newsletter, The Oxford Income Letter, which focuses on dividend growth companies. So can you share some examples of these kinds of companies? And it sounds like, you know, like it all sounds great to me, but not enough people are doing this because uh, if they were, I feel like we would be talking about this much more commonly. So there have to be drawbacks, right? So what may those drawbacks be? And also let's get specific and talk about some of your picks. Sure. So some of the drawbacks are that you do have to be a stock picker. And as we were talking earlier about uh, ETFs or index funds, you you know you kind of spread the risk among different um, different sectors, different types of investments. Whereas if you're picking, let's say, ten or or twenty individual stocks, uh, you know there there is risk with with any stock. And and if the broad market goes down, uh, some of these stocks could go down. If the broad market is on fire. And let's say growth companies are really what's hot, then dividend stocks may outperform because they're typically, especially companies that have decent yields, are typically more value-based companies. Not all, but but typically. So those are some of the drawbacks. But what I like about this approach is it's been proven to work for decades and decades and decades and over the long term. So again, you know, any one or three-year period, it might not, but typically over 10 years these types of stocks outperform the market and certainly over 20 years and uh, you know over over 20 years the i'm sorry over 10 years the dividend aristocrat index and aristocrats are companies in the S&P 500 that have raised their dividends every year for 25 years or more they've never had a losing decade so uh, so the stuff works you know for for long term investing this this style really does work very well you also are a member of the Oxford Club. Can you tell us about that? What is the Oxford Club? Sure. So the Oxford Club is the largest uh, private organization of wealth seekers. We publish a number of different uh, newsletters and, and services. As I mentioned earlier, mine is called the Oxford Income Letter, and that focuses on dividend growth companies. We do have one portfolio of high-yield dividend companies, and those aren't necessarily dividend growth, but we do know that we have readers who do want uh, you know, some of those 10, 12 percent, some of those juicy yields. Uh, so that's one portfolio, but the rest of it is focused on these dividend growth companies. And you know, just because you're getting growth doesn't mean you have to sacrifice yield, I and mean, we're still getting an average starting yield of about 5 percent. And then as the, those dividends increase every year, your yield uh, goes up. So you might start at 5%, but after three or four years, you might be up at five and a half or six or 7%. So that's, that's really the focus of the Oxford Income Letter. I'd love to transition to some of your history with learning about money and your experience with money. As all guests here on the show are you know, generous in sharing some anecdotes. I don't know what makes them want to share it. Maybe it's just because I make them and they have nowhere to escape. <laughs> But nonetheless, here we are. Um, so growing up, uh, what was your introduction to money like? And you mentioned stock picking and the markets. And was it something that you were conditioned to appreciate as a kid? Or maybe it was just something that came to you as an adult? I'm curious if there are roots to that in your upbringing. Sure. So uh, my parents never sat down and talked to me about money as far as I can remember, but they definitely led by example. We were a middle class family in a fairly affluent community. And so I was very aware of kind of the differences between our family and, and others. And, and I have nothing to complain about. We never went without, but we, we certainly didn't live extravagantly. So 
from from probably about 10 years old, I you know was shoveling snow to make money. Once I was able to work a real job at 16, I was working in high school. So I've kind of always been working. Uh, but what, what uh, kind of a, a really seminal moment for me as a young adult, my first job out of school, I was working for a very small advertising agency in Greenwich Village uh, in New York. And I hated the job and I was a low man on the totem pole. And one of the things I had to do was open the owner's mail and sort it. And one of the things that he was a big investor and I read, uh, I don't even remember what it was that I read, what product it was, but it talked about how at the time, the maximum you could contribute to an IRA was $2,000. And it talked about if you contributed $2,000 to an IRA starting at age 21 and stopped at 31, you would have more money when you retire than if you started at 31 and invested all the way up until 65. And I had, you know, I understood compounding just because I'd been a saver my whole life. But that that was kind of that light bulb moment when it really, it really showed me how important time is in investing and letting your money grow. And so I was making $18,000 a year at the time living in Manhattan. And I found a way to put away $2,000 every year in my IRA or and when I went on to other jobs to make sure I was contributing to 401ks because that made such a big impression on me. And, you know, years later, once I started uh, working on Wall Street and writing about investing, I mean, it, it's, it's kind of become the most important concept that I talk about, the power of, of compounding and letting time work its magic. It's magic. Nothing beats opening up other people's mail. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it, it changed my life. I have a kind of a story like that where I was an assistant early on in my career working for a top editor. And part of my job was to open her mail. I was able to see, because she would get all sorts of mail, I was able to see, uh, for example, her checks for her speaking engagements, her fees, or maybe like uh, some, you know, book advance numbers. And it opened my mind to how you could have multiple income streams as a journalist, um, how you had all this potential to make a lot of money if you expanded your personal brand. And so that was really, for me, the beginnings of um, inspiring me to kind of take me down this path. So I think if you ever have a job in your 20s where you can open up someone else's mail, do it. That's a lesson. Uh, well, what I just spoke about, about compounding uh, and, and just letting time work for you. And when I was uh, when I was researching Get Rich with Dividends, I had this massive spreadsheet and, and actually it's in the book and you can see you know, year by year how much your wealth can increase when you're reinvesting the dividends over time. And, you know, it starts slowly from year one to year two or year five to year six. You're not seeing such a big difference. But as you get out there and you're 17, you're 20, the difference from year to year is so huge. It, it, and when you see it, you know, when you actually see the numbers in front of you in a, in a spreadsheet or on a table, it really makes a pretty big impact. And, you know, that that's really uh, I, I can't emphasize it enough that if you have time on your hands, meaning, you know, you're you're not ready to retire now, you're not you know 75 years old, but you're 20s, 30s, 40s, even 50s. And you have a few decades until you may need the money, um, get it invested and and leave it alone for the most part. I mean, there was a, a study by Fidelity's very famous study that it's the accounts 
that fidelity in that fidelity managed that were the most successful were the accounts that people had either forgotten about or died. So, you know, buy and hold, I'm not a strict buy and hold person. I'm not set it and forget it person, but generally don't mess with it too much and, and just let time work its magic. What are your thoughts, though, on if you need your money before 10 years or before five years? I think a, a rule of thumb I've always heard and appreciate is if you need your money back in five years, don't put it in the stock market. So what sort of is the time limit? Uh, I, I agree with that. I usually tell my readers three years. If you have five years, you know, I, I wouldn't put it in, uh, in in speculative names. And you know, if you need in five years, maybe have it invested for a, a few years and then you can start to scale back. But that, yeah, there's nothing wrong with, with a five-year time horizon either of making sure that that cash is available. I mean, you could always, you could always put it into some bonds or treasuries. I mean, you won't get the return that you, you possibly could in the stock market. But, you know, anything can happen in the market, in the stock market, particularly over three years, even five years. Is there a lesson you learned the hard way? Is there a financial failure you're willing to share now that you've... uh... (laughs) There there are a few. Um, I I certainly paid my tuition like everybody else. Um, During the dot-com boom, I bought a stock that, and I knew the company was garbage, but everything was going up. And I bought the stock and it did very well. And, and well, the first thing was I bought too much of it for my income and, and the assets that I had. So I bought the stock. It did very well and it, it doubled. And I said to my wife, I think I'm going to sell half of it, get our investment off the table. And keep in mind, this, is, this was a very speculative stock. This, isn't, this wasn't a, you know, a dividend payer that I planned on holding for years. And so she said, why don't we let it run? You know, this is during dot-com fever. Everybody's making a fortune. Why don't we let it run and, and really try to make this a home run? And I said, well, it, it kind of already is a home run. It's more than doubled. And I'd feel a lot better knowing that all of our risk is, is off the table. I'll be able to sleep at night. And then, you know, we just let the, the rest of it run higher and we're playing with the house's money. And we were trying to save up for a house. She said, look, if this thing goes, the stock had gone from seven to 15. If this thing goes to 40, we'll have a down payment on a house and blah, blah, blah. And she, she basically challenged my manhood. So at that point, I uh, did not sell it. And the stock went from 15 to 10. And I said, well, if it gets back to 12, I'll sell it. Then it went to seven. If it gets back to 10, I'll sell it. And went to five. I said, well, if it gets back to break even, I'll sell it. And I wrote it all the way down to zero. Oh my gosh. Jim Cramer always says pigs get slaughtered. <laughs> and, and also, but it also taught me, well, a, a couple of lessons. One, don't invest so much that you, that it's stressful, that you can't sleep at night. Um, but also to, uh, besides where pigs get slaughtered, trust, you know, trust myself a little bit and, and, and trust how not even in so much my analytical skills, but trust how I'm kind of handling the emotions of an investment. And if something's getting too much, then yeah, you should take something off the table if it's, if it's, you know, making you crazy. Quick question for you now about a lesson you wish you had learned when you graduated from college. This question is brought to us by our sponsor, Chase, and it's graduation season. So we want to know what's the number one piece of financial advice you wish you'd had upon graduating, Mark? Start investing for the long term with your very first paycheck. If you invest, let's say, $2,000 between the ages of 21 to 31 and stop you'll have more money at 65 than if you start at 31 and invest every year up to 65. That's the power of compounding. 
So invest for the long term as early as you can. You want as many years to compound that interest, those dividends, those gains as you can. So a little personal anecdote I learned about you, Mark, is that you're a big fan of the Rolling Stones. Yes, I am. And you do a Mick Jagger impersonation. I won't make you do it here. Um, But you have a, a pretty interesting perspective on the latest Rolling Stones tour. What is that all about? So I was very dismayed to see that uh, the Rolling Stones uh, sole U.S. sponsor for their tour is uh, a trade organization for annuities. And I've written uh, extensively about how bad annuities are for most people. And I know there are people out there who love them. And I'm not saying they're wrong for everyone, but they are wrong, I, I believe, for most everyone. And just as an example of that, the in, in 2016, the Department of uh, Department of Labor put forth a rule called the fiduciary rule. So right now, if you're a certified financial planner, you are considered a fiduciary. It means you have to do what is in your client's best interest. If you're a regular stockbroker or uh, insurance broker, you it, the rule is you have to do what's suitable for your client. So the difference could be. Uh, a certified financial planner would say, okay, my client wants to be in a growth fund and they will find the cheapest uh, fund that they can find that, that meets their objectives. Whereas a broker or a regular broker who is not a fiduciary could find a growth fund that is suitable for them, but charges a, a 5% load and they get a big commission. So that's, that's the fiduciary rule. So in 2016, the fiduciary, a fiduciary rule was put in place for all brokers, including insurance brokers. I'm sorry, I I misspoke. It was not put in place. It was approved. Once that rule was approved, sales of annuities fell off a cliff because they are not in clients' best interest most of the time. It turns out that the rule was never uh, implemented. In in fact, it was now shot down and annuity sales have spiked up. And the reason I'm so against annuities is they're very, very expensive. Uh, and, and they're basically insurance products that are masquerading as investments. And I just believe that you can you can do it much cheaper if you need you know if you need some kind of insurance, get some insurance. Um, but you can you can invest in index funds. You can invest in dividend growth companies and get some income and do it much much cheaper than annuities. And the thing with annuities too is there's often a cap on how much you can make. If it's fixed, you, you, you know, it, you'll never make more than a certain amount. If it's variable, it can go higher if the stock market goes higher, but it's usually a, a pretty low cap on how much you can make. The positive thing about annuities is it's guaranteed. So uh, you know what your the minimum payment that you'll receive. So some people like it for that reason, but I just think you can do so much better in other ways without paying the the huge fees and commissions of annuities. And so going back to the Rolling Stones, you know, their audience is, is a little bit older, uh, you know, middle-aged to, to retirees. So it's the exact demographic that annuities are targeting. Uh, and, and Mick Jagger also went to the London school of economics. So he should know better than, than to be pitching these, these terrible products to his fans. Yeah, he should know better. But like you just articulated, the annuities industry is quite wealthy. Oh, absolutely. So how does this change your views on the Rolling Stones? Are you still going to go to their concerts? Is this just a, a deal breaker? 
<laughs> no, I'll, I'll still be there. I've, I've got my tickets. I'll be in the uh, the 16th row, so I'll, I'll be there. I'll, I'll forgive them on this. Uh, I'm, I'm assuming this might be their last tour, but I've, I've been saying that for about 25 years. So, What is your number one money habit, personal finance habit outside of investing, Mark? When you're managing your money, whether it's saving or pl- you know spending, planning, what's something that you do frequently or at least strategically? Uh, I would say saving. Uh, I've always been a saver. And then I think that's something that my parents did, uh, did kind of, even though they, again, they didn't talk to me about it, but I saw them do it. So whether it's, you know, my 401k, my health savings account, uh, or just at the end of the month after having paid all the bills, there's extra money in the checking account, making sure it's going to investments or my kids 529 plans. Um, but I'm, I'm, a, I'm a diligent saver. I have been my entire life going back to when I was making $18,000 a year. I've, I've always been a saver, always been, I don't even want to say concerned about a rainy day. I've just been, I just want to know that that money is there for emergencies or for, for good things like Rolling Stones tickets, which were not cheap. I think you live in Florida, right? I've, ha- I've had some friends move to the Florida area and they <laughs> really love the tax savings. So maybe sell me on Florida a little bit, Mark. Like what are the pros financially of living in Florida? So as, as you mentioned, the tax savings, we moved there in 2003 and my son was two years old. And I said to my wife, we moved from San Francisco and I said, if we take what we're paying in state income tax every year in California and just put it into his 529 plan uh, to pay for college, we'll be set. Uh, and of course, we didn't follow exactly that, but we did contribute to the 529 uh, for a long time. And he's going to college next year. And we're, we're in pretty good shape uh, because of that. Uh, Florida, I'm in Palm Beach County, which is not the cheapest county in Florida by any measure, but compared to some of the big cities on the East Coast and West Coast, it is so much cheaper. So when we moved from California, and I, and I believe this is true today, in Florida, I'd say you get twice the house for half the money that you do in probably New York, Boston, maybe Philly, certainly LA and San Francisco. Uh, so, th- so housing is cheap compared to certain markets in the country. Um, real estate taxes is pretty inexpensive. Sales tax is fairly inexpensive, and um, you know the weather's great. So you don't, you know, you have to you have, you have to run the air conditioning for seven or eight months a year, but you need to worry about putting on the heat really. And you need a job where you can work remotely if you're somebody's looking to transition from like a northern state to uh, Florida without really switching jobs or industries. Yeah, it, it's it's a great place for that. And and I mean there are some some big companies in the state and, you know, there are employers and, and people are moving there every day. You know, there, there's so many people who move from New York uh, or, or East coast from the up North. And, it, and it's not just retirees. I mean, there are a ton of, of younger people coming down to Florida. Uh, their unemployment is very low right now. I believe tons of work in healthcare because of, of all the retirees and the seniors. So uh, it, it's, it's a, a great place, I think, to raise kids kids and, and raise a family. You know, you can go to the beach whenever you want. And, um, I'm, you know, I've been here 15 years and, um, I love New York. That's, you know, I grew up in New York and would like to get a place there and, and split my time there once my kids are out of the house. But, um, I think I'll certainly always keep a place in Florida. 
I mean, we hear a lot from people on this show who have been, let's say, early retirees, millionaires next door. Guess what? They're not, they're not living in New York or New Jersey. They really examine the cost of your location and how so much geography dictates your ability to save. It's compelling. I'll tell you that much. I'll tell you, I'm sitting here and thinking maybe I should call my husband <laughs> tonight and talk about Florida. I don't think he's going to go for it. Well, you know, actually, and that brings up a really good point about quality of life, because when we were in Florida, my wife got a job offer back in San Francisco, and it was a very good job. It paid really well, and we were considering it. But it was it was going to be a pretty intense job. She was going to be you know working till seven o'clock at night every night, most likely. And we had young kids at the time. Whereas, so she turned it down because living in Florida, the cost of living was so much less that there just was you know not as much financial pressure uh, to you know to be in that rat race and and pay that mortgage uh, you know San Francisco mortgage or San Francisco rent. So uh, our quality of life is definitely much better in Florida than I think it would have been in San Francisco, even though San Francisco is an amazing place and we love it. Uh, There's just not that financial pressure. Right. And like you said, you can always move somewhere else later. I think when you have kids, that's a huge consideration, right? That the cost of affording your kids and making sure that they're uh, you know, set up with schools and you know, have proper safety and all of that where you live is paramount. We've had friends who've retired uh, back to cities after raising their kids in the suburbs. Um, you know, their kids are in college and maybe just coming back to visit for breaks. It's actually fun when it's just maybe the two of you and you're uh, able to take advantage of all of the things that a city yeah. offers that you weren't maybe able to because you were so busy raising your family. Exactly. And or, you know, when I was living in the city making $18,000 a year, I had no money to do anything other than eat some ramen and that was about it. So now I'd love to go back to to New York and actually be able to afford to go see some shows and go to museums and things like that. It reminds me of a joke I heard the other day. I was uh, on the Steve Harvey show and he said to the audience, I don't know if we were recording or not, but he said something like, you know, building wealth takes time and getting rich overnight, it doesn't happen. Um, He says, you know, think about everybody you see in first class. Everybody in first class is old. (laughs) It's all senior citizens because they've earned it. Like, anyway, I mean, there's plenty of young people in first class too these days, but I thought it was a really funny image. Mm -hmm. Um, He's got a lot of funny money jokes, by the way. I think he should go on the road with his financial shtick. And this has been fun. Mark, thank you so much for coming on the show and being so honest and having (laughs) some great perspectives on how we can up-level our investing strategy. I think it's important also that, uh, you know, you follow up with the Rolling Stones. I I hope they change their guidelines for the next tour. Well, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. It was a lot of fun. Thanks so much to Mark for joining us. To learn more about the Oxford Club, go to oxfordclub.com. His book is called Get Rich with Dividends, A Proven System for Double-Digit Returns. He also has a new book out, which we didn't even have time to talk about, but it's called You Don't Have to Drive an Uber in Retirement. That's a great title, isn't it? Thanks so much to Mark for joining us. If you missed any of this, head over to somoneypodcast.com and you can also click on Ask Farnoosh to send me your Friday questions for our Ask Farnoosh jam sessions. Thanks for tuning in again and I hope your day is so money. Money.